Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's installment of the Daily Delphi. Today, we are joined by the Chair of the Classical Association in Northern Ireland and Vice-Chair of the Classical Association of Ireland, Founder and Coordinator of the Belfast Summer School in Ancient Greek and Tutor in Classical Greek at Queen's University Belfast, Helen McVie. How are you, Helen? I'm fine, thank you very much. <laughs> what, a, <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> That's worthy I don't have time to sleep when I'm doing all that. <laughs> oh, we're glad that you've given us your time to uh, be here and do this. So today we will be talking about ancient Greek novels. And so to kick things off, sort of lay the foundations for what we're about to talk about. Helen, how would you define the genre of ancient Greek novels? How do we distinguish them from epic poetry and the like? Um, well, there are only five ancient Greek novels that have survived. Um, and these novels, these five works, they differ from um, the likes of the, the Odyssey or Plato's Dialogues or Tragedy in two respects. So they're written in prose, they're not written in verse, and the subject matter is fictional. It's a realistic but untrue story. So it's not a myth. A myth is a traditional story. Um, for example, the myth of Prometheus. It's not a legend which again is a traditional story regarded as historical, for example, the legend of King Arthur, but it's, it's a realistic story, but it's not true. That's the, the important part. Um, so the, the novels differ from epic and drama and poetry, which are written in verse, and they differ from history or philosophy, which is also written in prose, but they are, you know, history, Herodotus histories is obviously true, supposed to be true. Um, so they're extended stories, this imaginative literature created in prose. And so there are a large number of texts which could be construed as novels because they're fictional. Um, for example, there is Lucian's True Story, which is, I know it's on the, the GCSE Greek syllabus. Um, and Lucian's true story begins with the lines, I will say one thing that is true, and that is that I am a liar. So my readers must not believe a word I say. And then he goes on to relate um, journeys to the moon and into the, the belly of a whale. So it's, it's a fantastic story. Um, but the, the five novels that we're talking about that are the, the ancient Greek novels, um, they're similar in terms of their subject matter. So they have this, this um, overarching theme in common and they form this sort of coherent group. So they're love stories. Sometimes they're called romances. So they're love stories. And the protagonists are usually a young man and a young woman from noble families. That's another thing, they're nobility. And with nobility, um, you, you get beauty because um, I think from, from Homer, Homeric times, you know, the gods were very beautiful. Gods and goddesses were very beautiful. So your personality was um, displayed in, in how you looked. So they're, they're very beautiful. They're uh, from noble families. Um, the girl is often compared to a goddess. Um, I'm going to be referring to one of the novel, novels over and over again, and that's Caratone's Calaroe because, you know, in my view, it's the best. It's great. Um, anyway, 
So the, the couple get together, they meet each other. Sometimes they marry, sometimes they don't get that far. They set out on a journey um, and then they become separated and they undergo a lot of harrowing experiences. Um, usually because you know they, they might be tortured or there's there's sometimes attempted rape as well so it's not always you know very nice um, but um, usually they get into this sort of bother because they are both um, maintaining their fidelity to each other you know they're both they've whether they're married or not married yet they um, have made this vow to each other that they will not be unfaithful um, so that gets them into trouble. Um, they're in danger of being murdered. Sometimes there is, it appears that they've actually been killed. There's apparent death and it looks like someone has been killed, but we find out later on, no, it was all an illusion. There's kidnappings um, by robbers and pirates. There's always some pirates somewhere and shipwrecks. Then, very important, at the end of all these ordeals, they are reunited and they return home. So they live happily ever after. You know, it's like one of our fairy stories, once upon a time, and then they lived happily ever after. So while all these terrible things are going on, um, the reader always knows that it's okay. You know, I don't know how they're going to reunite, but I know they will because there'll be a happy ending. That was, that was essential. Oh, I see. Interesting. Well, certainly sound very entertaining. Um, do they, how, do we know how they felt performance culture wise? Do we know how they were sort of distributed, disseminated in uh, ancient times? We're not sure how the novels were disseminated. I mean, I, I've said that I want to talk about, um, or I can talk about Caratone's novel, Calaroe, in, in greater detail than the others, because that's the one I've worked on. And it is very interesting because there are lots of recapitulations throughout the novel. Um, it is written in eight books. And at the beginning of book five, there is a lengthy recapitulation, um, a lengthy summary of all that has gone on so far. And some scholars have suggested that um, two things, that it possibly was published on more than one uh, papyrus roll and possibly book five was the beginning of the second papyrus roll and it required then the summary of what had gone before or alternatively um, it may have been released you know a little bit like Charles Dickens it might have been released in shorter portions or it may have been read because not read aloud I mean because not everyone you know, the contemporary readers, um, who were the contemporary readers? Because, I mean, women, I should say that um, this particular novel, Caratone's Calaroi, was written, we think, around um, the mid-first century AD, um, and it's the earliest of the five. Um, so we're at a point in history where um, girls may have been included in public education but education was still primarily for boys. Um, so we're not really sure who, who read them. There's a scholar from the later 20th century, which really is not that long ago, 
um, in the 1960s, Ben Edwin Perry wrote a work about the novels. And he suggested that given their, given their um, subject matter, that they were love stories, a bit like Mills and Boone, Danielle Steele, those kinds of things, um, that they were suitable for the uneducated and for women. Now, that's unlikely to be the case because, um, for a start, women couldn't read. However, they, they, going back to what I was saying about, um, about reading them aloud, that was an option for people who could not read. Um, but about Caratone's Calaroe, um, within that book, within that story, there are lots of quote, uh, quotations, quotes, little snippets from the Iliad and the Odyssey. Sometimes um, the author, Caratone, is really overt. He says, I'm now quoting from the Iliad. Sometimes he just puts it there and you know you can have the fun of recognizing that now the only people who could have recognized that were the probably the educated elites of the time who had time to go to school to send their children had time and money to send their children to school um and they would have read obviously homer as part of their education and then they would have fun picking out the quotations in in this story um and just as an example of how fun actually that would be, I recently read a book by a novel by an Irish author called Michael Hughes. And he wrote, um, he, he wrote, it's a reworking of the Iliad and it's called Country, highly recommend it. It's based on the Northern Irish Troubles and you have, you know, paramilitaries on one side, British Army on the other side, but he, he sort of relates that you've got the, the let's say the Trojans are the British army and the Greeks are the paramilitaries. And he has named his characters. You have one who's called Ackle, and obviously that's Achilles. But he's, there's a whole backstory. He's named Ackle because his father came from Ackle Island. And there's, there are, it's very interesting to read if you're familiar with the story of the Iliad and working out who's who and what's what. And when I read that, I realized how much fun actually it might be to read Caratone's Calaroe and pick out all these little bits, all these similarities. And I realized that I have digressed and gone completely away from the question. I think I answered the question. No, 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 you answered the question with it, no, don't worry. But it's interesting. And you've also answered a question I was going to come on to later about who read them. And I mean, that does start a whole culture. It continues as a culture. I mean, we have people like Chaucer throwing in classical allusion for the court in mm -hmm. Middle England. Yeah. That, that, that's the whole thing that continues but, even to this day. Yeah, yeah. And as well, you know, um, when you're talking about who read them, um, you did have that, that educated elite who would have read them. But in addition, not everyone actually needed to, to read um, because there's the possibility that they, they were read aloud to groups of people, maybe weekly extracts. Um, I don't know. There was also, um, there has been um, a reference to pantomime, um, not pantomime, just mime. There is a reference to um, Lucian's 
Peri Orceseos, which is a defense of the Roman art of pantomime. And the the character in this in this uh, dialogue is being forced by his friend to watch this pantomimic dancing. And it's a dramatic plot, apparently, that they have to watch. And the characters, one of the characters is called Parthenope. And I know this is really stretching it out, but Parthenope is a character in an ancient, in an ancient Greek novel, which we only have a fragment of. We only have a little bit of it. But there were two characters. There was Parthenope, the woman, and her, her beloved was Metiochus. Now, the reason I'm saying this and making the connection is because in, uh, in Turkey, there is a beautiful mosaic um, depicting the figures Metiochus and Parthenope. We know it's them because their names are written beside them. So that suggests that these characters were well known, even though unfortunately the, the novel, the text hasn't survived. So, you know, there may have been mimes, um, you know, performances of these novels. There are all sorts of ways in which they are able to consume their stories um, aside from just reading. Interesting. Now, you mentioned about how they are love stories, and mm -hmm. to me, I, I, I'm not sure, to me it seems as if that's the sort of thing that would endure in the Middle Ages when you've got the whole tradition of courtly love coming through in the Renaissance as well. And also the idea about, we talked about Lucian, and he's accredited with being one of the founders of sci-fi, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I was just going to ask, Obviously, this is a subject very dear to your heart, so I don't mean to insult it. But why do you think that ancient Greek novels <laughs> perhaps haven't uh, got so much attention as the as the epic poetry and and the ancient theatre of Athens? Well, um, they are. I know that that Longus, the novel by Longus called Daphnis and Chloe, is on university syllabi as a text to read. It's um, a nice text as, um, along with, I think, Xenophon of Athens, he's great to read as a, a first text um, when you've been learning Greek. Longus is a good one to read. They are all written, because they're written um, in the first, second and third centuries AD, they're in a more um, simplified, Hellenistic Greek, less complex than Attic Greek. I'm not, I'm not disparaging them in any way. Um, also, Daphnis and Chloe is a great text to read. But I think um, I'm going back to the scholar that I mentioned before, Ben Edwin Perry, who really was, there was, um, Rode was a German scholar um, about a hundred years previously, who wrote a huge tome on the novels in German. Um, ben Edwin Perry then um, published his work in English, thank goodness for the non-German speakers, um, on the ancient novels in the 1960s. Now, his contemporary view of literature was that love stories um, or Mills and Boone type love stories were for women and the uneducated, which is what I was saying earlier. So he allowed himself then to be influenced and he actually wrote that um, 
he thought literature in the Hellenistic period had divided into two separate forms and each one was addressed to a different class of people. Now that's a direct quote from him. One was the more intellectual and sophisticated class which would have appreciated the new comedy, you know, Menander, while the other class would have appreciated lowly romance of love and adventure. I'm quoting from him. Lowly romance of love and adventure meant for a reading public composed of young or naive people of little education, most of whom presumably lived in small towns or rural districts. So not sophisticated city dwellers. So that really is quite offensive, you know, because as I've said, Caratone has really worked hard to put all these Homeric quotes and quotes from other writers. There's Demosthenes in there. There's other, other, um, other texts have been quoted in there. But he has done that um, as a way to appeal to the more educated reader. So I think in no way were these five texts, were these five novels aimed at in uh, Perry's view, those of little education, certainly not. Um, and Heliodorus, his, he wrote um, the Ethiopian story and his, his story is, it's a, it's a long story. It starts in the middle. It is a very complex text in terms of the order that it all appears in. We start in the middle and in this sense, it's a bit like the Odyssey and a lot of the story is told by flashbacks and even flashbacks within flashbacks. So it is, you know, it's not for the faint hearted. It really isn't. Um, and I think all, all these things indicate that the ancient novels were written for the educated. Um, so I suppose since Perry wrote his work, the novels have become more popular as a genre to study. Um, and there, I mean, there are conferences, there are international conferences on the ancient novel. So certainly among scholars, it's becoming more, they are becoming more important. But um, at the time they were written, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure why. I think um, probably you had Homer, you had um, the wonderful tragedians um, and they were, they were set texts to learn in school. And I think that was probably the, the, the tradition. Yeah, I see, I see, interesting. Now, you keep mentioning your favorite, which name I can't quite uh, remember. Character. Would you like to tell us the story? Would I like to tell you the story? I would indeed. <laughs> I would. Well, um, so I told you, the, I gave you the list of all the things that the novels generally have in common. Um, so the story of Calaroe, um, it's usually just called Calaroe after um, the, the heroine. Um, her beloved is called Kyrius. And they meet in Syracuse on the island of Sicily. And that is where that is where they're from. And it's love at first sight. She is on her way. Now, the 
as a as a girl she doesn't go out in public you know she's she's the daughter of the general hermocrates and i know i said that novels aren't historical they're not true but actually in this novel there are some characters who are probably based on characters from history so we have the general hermocrates the sicilian general and Caraton keeps mentioning that you know he's the one who beat the Athenians. Um, so she's she's a, a noble girl. She hasn't been out in public, but she on this day she's going to the temple of Aphrodite to um, to perform um, a ritual, and she bumps into Kyrius as they're going round the corner. I mean, it is literally love at first sight, and he's. He's been to the gym, so he's all sweaty and he's glistening and he's super handsome. Um, and uh, they they marry. It's, I'll try not to digress too much because there's a lot going on. So they meet, they marry. And um, then, however, Calaroe has had a lot of suitors. She has had all these suitors camped out um, in Syracuse, hoping to win her hand, but Hermocrates agreed that it should be Carius. Now Carius is also, he's the second most noble, from the second most noble family on in Syracuse. Calaroe uh, is from the noblest. So, you know, they're a great match. But anyway, the suitors who have come from everywhere, um, they are really angry and they tell Carius, by the way, we have seen um, you know, men going into your house when you're not there. So they they um, put this into his head that she's been unfaithful. He gets really angry. He's so jealous. He gets really angry. He goes back to the, the house. She's glad to see him and she runs to him. But a little bit of domestic abuse here. He kicks her and she falls unconscious and she appears to be dead. So, I mean, whatever way he kicked her, she is really out for the count. Um... So she appears to be dead. They think she's dead and they bury her. They bury her with a wonderful funeral. Um, but a few days later, she awakens from this coma and she's inside the tomb. And as she awakens, there are pirates breaking into the tomb. Do you regret yet asking me to tell you the story? Not at all. Not <laughs> um, at all. So the pirates are breaking in um, and they take her and sell her to a nobleman in Miletus in Asia Minor. You know what? I've probably only got to the end of book one by now. I'll try and, and um, condense this a little bit. So she is sold to Dionysius, um, who lives in the Greek city of Miletus. He falls in love with her. This is a recurring theme. Everyone who sees her falls in love with her because she's so beautiful. She has the beauty of Aphrodite. Sometimes they think she's Aphrodite. That's a common theme through the other novels as well. Um, she has discovered that she is pregnant with Carius' child, but Dionysius has fallen in love with her. She does not want to, um, to give birth to her child, to bring her child up as a slave. So she agrees to marry him. So she, uh, she marries Dionysius and then, you know, seven months later, she has the baby and the baby is brought up as the child of Dionysius. Meanwhile, then, the story goes back to Syracuse and they've been, um, they've discovered the empty tomb and they go searching by sea for her body. And they find Theron the pirate 
um, you know, it's all, all very coincidental. They find him and he tells them what's happened. Um, they discover that she's alive after all, and then they go looking for her. They land in Miletus. And so this is Kyrius and his friend go off to search for her. They land in Miletus and they are captured and they are enslaved. So, uh, Kyrius' master, his master is called Mithridates in Miletus. He has heard of Calaroi and he has also seen her and fallen in love with her. Um, and he hears from Kyrius that he has been looking for Calaroi. He suggests that Kyrius write a letter to her. So this is interesting. Kyrius actually writes to Calaroi, um, expecting her to be able to read that. So she has been educated. So that's an interesting point about the possibility of a reader. But I mean, she's she's a, a noble, a noble girl who would probably whose family would have the time and the the money to educate her. Um, anyway, the letter is intercepted by Dionysius, who isn't very happy. He accuses Mithridates of attempted adultery and takes the case before the Persian king. So now there is a dramatic courtroom scene. So now they're all in Babylon. The Persian king is Artaxerxes. And we think he's probably based on Artaxerxes II, who is the, um, the, the Persian king that Plutarch writes about in his biographies. Um, we have a dramatic courtroom scene and Kyrius is revealed. So someone who um, we thought was dead, we thought, she, uh, I've missed that bit out, Calera, we thought he was dead. And he is revealed. And Mithridates is then acquitted. But now the Persian king has fallen in love with her, but he must now decide, is she legally married to Carius or is she legally married to Dionysius? So that is now what the, the, what the legal action is about. But the Persian king loves her and he wants to keep her in Babylon. There's so much happening. It's just boom, boom, boom so much action and you just don't know how on earth is the author we know there's going to be a happy ending how on earth is the author going to to resume uh, resolve all the the loose ends um the situation is interrupted by an egyptian revolt calaroe is captured she's presented to the egyptian admiral who turns out to be Kyrius. they go back to syracuse and they live happily ever after so I probably dwelt more on the beginning because there's almost more happening at the beginning where the story is being set up or the, the separation. Um, but it's, it's eight books of thrilling action. I really do recommend it. There are a couple of, there are a couple of editions, paperbacks that you can buy at the minutes. Um, I think one might be a penguin, I can't remember. Steve in Trash Coma has done um, a nice translation of it. And there's another one, I think it's by Helen Morales. So there are definitely two available. So, you know, I would recommend anyone to have a read at that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a hell of a tale. Well, <laughs> you said it was uh, eight books long. How, how long is it lines wise? How long is it? Well, I mean, if I am holding this up to you and I realise that our listeners can't see this, 
It is one volume of a lobe, which is about 400 pages. Oh, okay. So because it's Greek and English, so 200 pages, it's you could read it in a weekend. Gosh. And yet enough space to get all those twists and turns in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Ancient Greek novels, it's not really something I've been exposed to as a topic. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful that we have you uh, here to have a conversation about it. Just some final, more casual questions before we, we let you go. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favourite polis? Do I have a favourite polis? Well, um, I have to be very traditional and boring and probably say Athens is my favourite <laughs> polis because, you know, it's where we, we, we got all those wonderful tragedies. I'm a big fan of Greek tragedy. And um, I think, you know, definitely that that's, yes, that is my favourite for the, um, for the, the history and the literature and the, you know, the architecture that has survived. Um, there's a, forgive me if I'm digressing again, there's a wonderful book um, by Caroline Lawrence. It's, I think it was published in May. Caroline Lawrence, who has done all the Roman mysteries. And this is called The Time Travel Diaries, where a couple of um, teenagers go back in time to ancient Athens and they meet Socrates and they meet Plato (laughs) and they meet Alcibiades. It's fabulous. It's great. Highly recommend that, you know, even though, you know, I'm far too old to be reading, reading books like that. But it's uh, great no, fun. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Can't blame you for favouring Athens. Um, but furthering on from that then, what's your favourite tragedy? Athenian tragedy, if you what had to. What is my favourite tragedy? Um, well, that is really difficult because I love them all for different reasons. I think probably the Agamemnon because the whole story of the curse of the house of Atreus, I love how it's all linked. You know, there's Mm. so, there's so, so many stories all linked together. And, um, you know, Agamemnon is such an awful person. Um, He deserved all that he got there, really. (laughs) Um, He, you know, telling his wife that he wanted her to bring Iphigenia to marry Achilles and then sacrificing her. I mean, what was he thinking of? Um, So, you know, I don't blame her in the slightest. Um, And, you know, then he comes back with Cassandra. He brings a concubine, you know. Um, But I just, I love, I love the curse of the House of Atreus and how, you know, you can trace it right back in time to you know um pelops and all the the ancestors it's wonderful it's great i do love that um i love well i love them all um even though they're all obviously very depressing i taught (laughs) class um and we read a few greek tragedies um i sent them i sent the group away i talked about tragedy the first week just what it was sent them away to read oedipus the king and whenever they came back the next week, one I asked, how did you find it? And one said, it was very depressing. Well, you, that's, you've signed up for a tra- By nature, it's going to be <laughs> depressing. Um, so, yes, you know, reading, reading the tragedies, by the end of it, you feel like, you know, you need to lie down in a darkened room. But they're just such wonderful stories. But I think um, 
my favorite is definitely the Agamemnon. Yeah, interesting. Well, good choice. Very good choice. Well, thank you for coming out. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank and, you for uh, having thank you for me, Harry. Insight. Thank you very Anytime. much.